You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. The Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network is brought to you by Moultrie Mobile. Transform the way you hunt with the all-new base cellular trail camera connected by the Moultrie Mobile app. The base combines a best-in-class image sensor with an all-new back-end platform to deliver the image quality and reliability every hunter expects. Moultrie Mobile's Industry Best app gives you complete control over your camera settings, up-to-the-minute updates from the field, and other interactive scouting tools on your smartphone or computer. Features like weather forecast, advanced species recognition, interactive maps, activity charting, and a whole lot more. All free with one of Moultrie Mobile's affordable subscription data plans. For more information and to make your purchase, visit www.moultriemobile.com today. This is the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast. Brought to you by Vortex Optics. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Nine Finger Chronicles, man. I'm glad if you're listening to this right now, I'm glad you're here because it's not very often that I get the chance to really interview someone who I I wish I had their skills, right? And for some reason, the last three years, all I've been thinking about, aside from my, my whitetail passion... All I've been thinking about is is mule deer. I've been reading up on, you know, mule deer hunting. I've been talking to people who hunt a variety of different terrains and states for mule deer. And today's guest, Marlon Holden, is I don't know, argue, arguably he could be one of the best to go out public land, middle of nowhere, locate a deer group and get it done. And as you will hear in this episode, he gets it done in a, in his own way and he gets it done consistently and it's a little bit different way of thinking about it as you will hear. So, um, this is an absolutely excellent conversation. I had a absolute blast. I was definitely a student listening and we just scratched the surface. Uh, And he even mentions that it's like, you can't really talk about something that takes 15 years to learn in a single one hour episode. So, um, the goal is to get him on, uh, and, uh, talk to him again and again and again, if, if he allows me to. And I really, uh, I really enjoyed this conversation. I learned a lot, not only about mule deer, but just about the approach to hunting. 
and how our approach changes over the years as well. So really interesting episode. I know you guys will enjoy it because this guy could definitely put on a master class if he wanted to, and it sounds like he he's going to. So um, we're going to do some commercials real quick to get into the swing of things. And um, let's go with HuntStand. Now, HuntStand is an app. It's a, a mobile hunting app. You download it to your phone for free, and then if you want to upgrade to get all the awesome features, then it's like 30 bucks a year. It allows you the most up-to-date satellite imagery. You have a, a variety of base maps that you can select, like uh, topography, uh, topo lines, satellite imagery, and, and other you know other type of imagery. Then you can basically use that app to catalog. You can drop pins. You can uh, see boundaries, you know where public land versus private land is, you know the names of the public landowners. It is just a ton of information. So I strongly suggest if you don't already have HuntStand to go to HuntStand.com and read up on all the features that this app has or you can just go to the Google Play Store and uh, download it and mess around with it and uh, that's how I learn. You know, you download it, you mess around with it and then you learn it and just a ton of awesome features and it's very helpful in the field not only you know here at home with the whitetails but out west when i'm going about my journeys out uh, on public in in the west chasing these mule deer so uh, that's hunt stand next is wasp archery man i tell you what if you're looking for a broadhead that is made from the best possible materials and is a solid construction, solid engineering, solid customer service, just a solid company overall. And that's why they continue to be successful is they, because they not only care about their uh, customers, but they care about how their product, they're not taking shortcuts on their product. A majority, a majority of their heads are made in America. So if you want to go find out more information on uh, some of the heads that I use, like the boss four blade or the uh, three blade jackhammer, go to wasparchery.com and, uh, you can dis, uh, enter the discount code nine fingers, the number nine, followed by the word fingers two zero two one for 20% off. I also forgot that the hunt stand discount code for 20% off is SN two zero for 20% off. Uh, next is Ozonics. If you guys are the, the, if you're looking for something to maybe give you an advantage to change the game a little bit, you don't get to hunt a lot. So every opportunity in the field is important. You got to check out Ozonics, right? Not only the application in the stand and it distorts your scent cone, uh, but outside of the stand or outside of the blind in the garage or in your house to basically deodorize your clothes, make it scent free. So when you're walking into the woods, you're almost invisible. So uh, go check out ozoticshunting.com. Check out all of the different units that they offer. They have some new products this year, like the closet and uh, the little unit that plugs into your uh, cigarette lighter or your electrical plug in there in, in your vehicle and it deodorizes your vehicle as well. And then uh, let's see, that's three of them. And I think that's where we're going to call it today. So um, we did those three. Please go out and support the companies that support this podcast, man. It means a lot to me. And uh, other than that, man, uh, I'm going to catch up with you guys on a unfiltered episode coming later this week. But today's episode, man, I had an absolute blast and I was kind of giddy while I'm listening to him talk because I could see a lot of our sim similarities. And uh, so let's get into today's 
podcast with Marlon Holden. Three, two, one. All right. So just a little bit of a background why today's guest is on the podcast. And it's, it's very simple. I am just starting my mule deer adventures out west. This guy has been consistently killing mule deer and really good mule deer for a while now. And I'll be completely honest, I'm a little bit jealous uh, of him. I want to be this guy. And uh, I'm, I'm glad we finally got to connect. So everybody, Marlon Holden, how are we doing, man? Doing great, brother. Uh, appreciate you having me on. Thanks for, uh, thanks for reaching out. It's great. Yeah, absolutely. So before we start talking hunting, let's uh, let's get a little bit about who you are. Um, where do you live? What do you do for a living? That's a that's a kind of a, a funny one because I, I don't live in mule deer country at all. <laughs> I live in uh, Laguna Beach, California, uh, Southern California, and uh, uh, by trade, I'm a landscape photographer. So I uh, own a fine art business and uh, operate uh, my own gallery. It's a signature gallery in uh, Laguna Beach that uh, is just Marlon Holden Fine Art in downtown Laguna. Okay. And I have a great team that uh, that takes care of it for me and runs it while I'm gone and allows me to basically pursue, um, you know, my, my pursuits in the outdoors full time. Yeah. So I, I spend, uh, you know, I, I'm able to spend 270 or 300 days a year out in the field. That's amazing so basically what you've done is you've worked your ass off to build your business your business has been built and now you're to the point where you can hire other people to run your business and you go do you go shoot mule there that's 100 percent accurate yeah. yeah man i'll tell you what from a business standpoint i i'm in the middle of also growing my own business and that would be amazing if someday I could just get out there and be like, Hey, uh, today's on today's checklist is go check trail cameras or go scouting or, you know, fly to Colorado and, and go scout mule deer or elk for a week. So, um, that it, that's, that's my line as well. So it sounds like you've gotten there and that, uh, things are, things are going pretty well. Things are moving, uh, in a way, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm always a very progressive person. I'm never finished. I'm never done. Um, and entrepreneurship, uh, business scaling, mm-hmm. um, understanding business metrics, uh, taking care of my employees, leadership, that, that all comes first for me. Yep. So I, I'm very uh, ambitious from that standpoint. I've scaled a Fortune 100 company. I've scaled a Fortune 500 company. I've scaled this business. Um, to me... I always re- reverse engineer everything. It's important to, if you love something enough, create systems around it to where you can do it all the time. And, you know, that's really at the end of the day what I what I aspire to do in everything, whether it's family, friendships, hunting, you name it. It's kind of just uh, the way I go about it. Yeah, and that's a good way to do it, man. Uh, and uh, you're only as strong as the weakest link in your chain, and it sounds like uh, the, the chain that you tow is uh, pretty solid. I try, you know, I mean, in all reality, like we're always building every day, right? right. Nothing is ever um, finished. Right. Um, always working towards improving, optimizing, uh, making things better. But yeah, I mean, the goal is ultimately to be able to just pursue our passions in the outdoors, yeah. um, live out our dreams and be able to, you know, I, I also have this philosophy that like we get old and we've been taught, you know, 
along the way that you just work really, really, really hard for your life. And then, you know, you retire, but that like by then your body won't work. Right. Right. It doesn't do what you want it to do. And then you end up this old man and, and life's over. And so I kind of, you know, at an early age, I kind of had these profound emotions about it that said, well, wait, I, I don't, you know, I've seen all these other previous generations do this and that's what we're told to do. But I think the programming is kind of backward. I think that, um, leadership is the key most important thing that you can do in your life to position yourself in a place of success. Um, find something that you're passionate about that uh, allows you to solve problems, create solution-based approaches to others that offer value to allow you to garner a value proposition in life to be able to do the things that you like. Yeah. Um, I don't know. My mind just thinks differently like that. And no matter how well positioned I am, I can always be more well positioned. And so I'm just constantly striving to work on things that will allow me to truly and ultimately do what I love. And so I just continue to do that, my man. Um, and, you know, to what levels I, I garner or achieve in my lifetime, who knows? But um, the pursuit is always very real, yeah. whether it's chasing deer out in the mountains or whether it's really trying to be there for my staff. Yeah. So currently you're living in in southern california are you a, a socal native or are you a transplant from somewhere well i'm i'm a transplant in like every uh, manner of uh speaking um I, I was initially born in hawaii on the big island okay um but then um i sailed around the world um several times uh I sailed around the world on 58 foot sailboat with my family and then circumnavigated by myself um so I've traveled the world. I've been over 98 countries. I've been, you know, just all over. I have my 100-ton captain's license the U.S. Coast Guard. I'm on my fifth reissue, and I fish like crazy. That's actually where, you know, I first started. Everything was, was big game fishing, um, doing lots of tournaments and things like that. And uh, I didn't I didn't start hunting uh, until I was like 27, 28. Okay. Uh, and I'm 43 now, so I've only been hunting for like 16, 17 years. Yeah. Um, I'm self-taught. Like I didn't have anybody to teach me. Nobody wants, you know, hunting is the one thing where people are like kind of squeamish on delegating information. They're like, ah, I don't want to teach anybody. I want to, the, the, the process of trying to learn hunting can be a war of attrition. And as you well know, the source of the information is pretty much of key utmost importance because most of the time, the people that you talk to, if you look at like what they've accomplished really at the end of the day, isn't, you know, maybe up to like what, you would consider successful or, or maybe if it is, it's not, you know, to level. It, it was never to the level that I've wanted or that I desired to achieve. And so yeah. as a result of that, I was kind of on an Island. If that makes sense, I was kind of by myself in that journey, trying to figure out like what that looked like and what I yeah. wanted it to be. So, yeah. um, a, a lot of self evolution, um, and a lot of reflecting, uh, on my own time, trying to figure out like what those goals would look like, what I wanted um, you know, that to look like in hunting for myself. Yeah. For sure. So kind of taking a backward step here, uh, you sailed around the world, not only with your, like with your family, uh, growing up, but also by yourself. Like, I, I'm sorry. I want to talk about mule deer, but that's very, not a lot of people have done that. And even in today's world with today's technology, um, sailing around the world, just seems like a crazy, uh, from not only a logistic standpoint, but just like, Hey, I'm going to go sail around the world. Yeah. It's a pretty wild deal. Um, you know, you, you really, truly 
have to be self-reliant um, to the nth most degree. Like there's no such thing as, well, I'm just going to go to the you know mechanic or I'm going to just go get this done and drive somewhere and fix it. Like you're on every level, um, self-sufficient, self-reliant. You can't let fear ever enter your, your psyche whatsoever because fear will kill you when you're traveling around the world. When you're sailing on a boat, you're 1,000, 1,500 miles away from any land and you're in a nasty storm. You blow out a sail and, you know, your rudder goes out or something happens. Like, or you're, you know, I did, the first time I did it was with uh, Sextant. We didn't have GPS, Sat Nav, Loran, nothing. It was, there was no electronics. It was just a old school primitive Sextant declination tables in Greenwich Mean Time. Second go around, I, I did have uh, Sat Nav, uh, and then that bridged into GPS. Um, yeah. But, um, it is a whole different kind of life experience. Um, I choose to position myself truly as an outdoorsman, somebody who is very self-reliant in a practical application purpose. I don't go running around barefoot with a loincloth. You know, I like technology. I love the things that technology affords, but I love self-reliance Yeah. Uh, in a meaningful way. Bow hunting for me is a form of connection. Um, and it also, you know, seemed to me a great thing to do because when I was sailing around the world, you oftentimes, there were no stores to go buy any meat. You couldn't go buy, you know, food or anything. A lot of these places you make landfall and there's like nothing. It's just jungle going down to the ocean. There you are. You drop the anchor and try and catch a fish or something. I mean, it, it's, a there's no convenience store. There's no gas station. There's no quick stop. There's no, you know, doesn't exist these conveniences i mean i would bathe in salt water dude i'd brush my teeth in salt water wash my clothes in salt water like you'd ration your fresh water because you never knew when it was going to rain again or when you'd get a river to be able to collect water again um like it's a very uh take only what you need use only what you need type of a, a life yeah and uh you learn to respect things to such a finite degree that you really you know you look at western uh, comforts and civilization and what, you know, the world that we live in now where we literally like go to the bathroom and flush a gallon of water down the toilet. It's like, Oh my God, that's such crazy waste and consumption. It's unreal. But, yeah. uh, you know, for us out here now, it's like normal life. And, and so when you're on the, on, you know, on the ocean, like, you know, you use a bucket <laughs> and, uh, half the time, you know, it sounds crude as heck, but like toilet paper, like just jump in the water, you know, yeah. and, like, you know, it's just that things uh, really go by the wayside yeah. um, that really matter here don't matter out there. And it's the same thing with hunting for me. It's an ultimate connection. It's truly yeah. understanding, being a part of and respecting uh, everything that is the evolution and process of understanding yourself as a human being yeah. uh, and your the part you play um, in, in nature, in the ecosystem, and within the realm of these animals that we pursue. I think it's all very closely tied together and why it is that I do what I do, for sure. Yeah. Man, that's very, very spiritual and emotional connection. And, and I'll tell you what, it, it was an emotional connection for me that when I was in like just a really bad time in my life, I climbed up in a tree stand uh, here in Iowa and I had one hunt where I don't even remember if I saw a deer or not. It was just the environment that sucked me in. And I said to myself, holy cow, I want to do this as much as humanly possible. So uh, it was that it, it was that single experience that kind of 
turned my ship, so to speak, into what I do today. And, uh, you know, here I am loving every single minute of it. Now, for for you, um, obviously, when you grow up in Hawaii, wh- when did you move to California? How old were you when you moved to California? Um, that's kind of interesting. I, I first moved here when I was probably, I'd say, seven, eight. Okay. Seven or eight, something like that. Um, but you don't understand, I've traveled so much in my lifetime. So as I, I could arguably say that, you know, California has been my kind of like home base for the last 35 years. Okay. Ish. All right. All right. Um, but with that said, um, I've traveled so much and I continue to travel so much that it is truly a home base. Like I'm gone. I'm gone bare minimum 270 days a year. Yeah. And is that just, is that work related as well? Or is that all outdoor, like hunting and fishing related? No, it's, it's work-related. I mean, my job is to, like, travel the world and capture landscapes. Yeah. So my Instagram is obviously at Greylight Hunter for my hunting, but for my photography, it's at Marlon Holden. Okay. And, um, you know, I run a, a seven-figure business um, with my fine art. It's all limited edition stuff. I travel the world and capture just crazy rare moments um, yeah. of unique and beautiful light, super blooms, fog and trees, light rays, you just dramatic landscapes you name it yeah um and you know we we cater to like uh high-end luxury real estate builds anywhere from five million to 20 million and up um and uh place my artwork as limited edition custom works in people's homes and we do like you know color stories and art stories uh with uh, our interior designers through lux international and you know do private placements with uh with the artwork to, you know, a lot of accredited individuals. And it's just a, become a passion of mine to like travel the world and seek out beautiful light. So I'm, I'm literally a full-time outdoorsman. That's what I do. Um, but I spend so much time, uh, hunting and in the field hunting and pursuing mule deer that, um, you know, because it's just my passion. It's absolutely what I love. Um, but it's interesting when you turn the corner of, there's a very dramatic corner that you turn um, when you say, I want to kill one of these things with my bow to, I want to understand these creatures. Yeah. Um, the moment like we become a student, like everything changes. And the moment you're no longer focusing on putting an arrow on the side of one and you're truly like understanding the characteristics by which make them what they are. Um, you can watch them for hours upon hours. I mean, at this point I've watched them so much that like, I know when they're going to bed before they bed. I know when they're going to get up out of their beds. I know when they're going to fuck, when they're going to bust. I know when they're going to get up and start feeding. Um, there's like this biorhythm. Um, and it's a function of kind of like almost like us and how we have our kind of patterns uh, they very much so do. And I, and yeah. I think that not much cadence is paid to what their actual biorhythm is. And a lot more is paid to like, okay, there's one, like, let's go kill it. And so I, I've paid much more attention to their journey and what it is to be a mule deer than it is to focus on killing them. And as a result of reverse engineering that, um, it's created some really amazing proficiencies. Yeah. Um, 
and, and it's allowed me to garner much more from the adventure and the journey too. Yeah. Yeah. That's a definitely an understatement that, you know, a lot of people, uh, you know, maybe, maybe they want that out of their journey. Maybe they don't, but I feel like there's a big part of hunting, like what you just said, that if people slowed down and just absorbed the, what they see instead of just going out and trying to kill a deer or kill a elk or whatever they're going after, there's a whole, there's several layers under that where you can absorb that information and you can absorb that environment. And it just makes you better at ultimately understanding, like you said, and hunting those animals. Yeah, for sure. Without question. Yeah. So I kind of, I'm kind of curious, you know, you, you, you talked a little bit about big game fishing and you didn't, you didn't pick up a bow until your late twenties was there a significant moment where all of a sudden you're just like, Hey, I want to try bow hunting. Like what, what did that, what was that moment like? Um, so I was extremely successful in the fishing arena. I had won, um, several millions, uh, in tournament winnings in the Marlin tournament circuit, um, as a captain. Um, leading my team to multiple victories for second, third place finishes in some of the most prestigious billfish tournaments uh, that are that, that exist. Um, and to me, um, hunting seemed to be like this. It was like this um, this new kind of pursuit, right? Yeah. It, it was unknown, uh, slightly familiar because I had to do a little bit of it when I was sailing around the world to like provide protein but not to the degree that you know you really really like get so in tune with a certain species and go after it as a passion it was more to feed myself back then so this is a a very altogether different pursuit i chose bow hunting because uh to me hunting with a gun uh, and in all honesty I, i look at it as grocery shopping i don't see any skill or talent in it and i know that that might piss a lot of people off but i really don't care um it, it, I think at the end of the day, like it's fine uh, to go out and pursue an animal with whatever weapon you choose. I think that's great. And I think that there is brotherhood involved in anyone who decides to hunt. But from a, from a spiritual, from a pursuit-oriented journey that, that you're garnering kind of a, an understanding more about like if you go into the mirror and you take a look in the mirror, what's looking back at you? like your reflection looking back at you, who do you see? I feel like there's much more spiritual ingestion in understanding who you are as a bow hunter than, than you are as a rifle hunter. Like as a rifle hunter, you can kind of grab your rifle, go into the field, uh, find something. And, and as long as you're a, a decent marksman, um, you, you can shoot something from with, with, uh, with not as much skill. Yeah, and I and I've shot rifles. Like I, I I understand ballistics and trajectory and and drift and I've been around rifles and guns my whole life. So it's not that I don't understand it. I don't think it's necessarily. I think it's definitely skill to be able to shoot something at a thousand fifteen hundred yards. I think it's, but that's a craft. But that's math. There's a lot of math in it, and there's a lot of. Uh, understanding yourself as far as like, you know, controlling your breathing and your heart rate and things like that. But that's different than hunting. Yeah. Um, that's, that's a different craft altogether. Like if you want to be a sniper in, in the Marine Corps, if you want to like go out and, you know, rack up, rack up kills for the flag, like that's a different craft in hunting. 
Um, if you and, and bow hunting to me is a pursuit of the soul. It's a pursuit of the heart. Uh, it's something that um, when you're able to sneak in on your feet into something else's living room that lives there and knows its living room very, very intimately and well and has all the senses uh, keen on ensuring that their survival is based off of their ability to detect you and you're able to slip in and put an arrow into that creature without it knowing, uh, I believe that that starts to resemble mastery. Yeah. And um, to me, there's a, there's a passion beauty play in there that is very sophisticated in its approach to understanding who you are as a predator, who you are as a human being, your understanding of the cycle of life that you're put in place with. And, and I think that just rifle hunting displaces that a little bit. And like I said, I, I don't care what you, you know, choose to hunt with. I hunt with whatever you want with. I, I'm not going to judge, but I'm saying for me, characteristically, kind of like from a point of view of perspective of really caring about the hunt um, and understanding what personally I'm trying to get out of it. Like bow hunting is just, there's just nothing greater. And I almost kind of like, I almost kind of like uh, give myself a hard time sometimes for using a compound because I feel like uh, even with the compound, I'm probably, it's more like rifle hunting to me. Like, cause if I see something with a compound, it's going to, it's going to die. Like it's, it's compounds kind of getting easy. And so I'm, I kind of clown myself sometimes for even using a compound. Cause I think that, you know, I should probably start, should probably start going trad soon. I really should. Um, but I'm still in that phase where I enjoy taking down a big buck yeah. and knowing that I can take it down. And, and I, and I'm going to sit here and say that I'm probably not good enough to consistently take one with a trad bow yet. Uh, but I think that, I think that I think that that's going to be something that I'm going to pursue. Yeah. And when I pursue it, I want to do it consistently. Like there's a few guys that are out there that do it consistently and they're just, you know, they're just incredible. Um, and I, I think that the stocking is definitely up to par. I think it's just like learning something that's altogether new. It's a yeah. new challenge, a new adventure, a new journey. Like I have no doubt that I can get there with it. Um, but I think that that's going to be kind of like my next step if, if, I, if I'm being totally honest. Yeah. That yeah. evolution has to happen within the next 10 years for sure. Like yeah. It just has to happen. Yeah. I'm, uh, I, th- I think about that as well. Right. Um, it, like compound, like there's, there's, there's this, this, I don't know. Every, it's different for everybody. I, I have this ladder and every rung is a different goal that I want to achieve. And like one of those rungs is going trad and continuing the same success that I have, um, that I've had in the past handful of years with my compound bow, but kind of going to that point where, you know, obviously there's a learning curve, uh, on, on just about everything in this world. And I'm sure that when, you know, that when you, and just, just listening to you talk about how, you were successful in, in the, the captain's arena, the fishing arena. You decided you want to get into mule deer hunting. What did that, those first couple years of attempting to mule deer hunt look like for you? Um, <clears throat> not how most looked. So um, this is the interesting part. Ever since I started hunting, I filled every single tag I got. Hmm. Um, I did not, um, 
yeah, it, w- it wasn't a challenge for me. So, so there's this. It was a challenge. Don't get me wrong. I, I can't say that. What, what's become more of a challenge now is finding the animal that I'm interested in harvesting. That's the challenge. Um, back then, I wasn't, you know, really sure even what it was. So I was just like shooting stuff. Um, I'm like, cool. Like, there's a buck. You know, go shoot it, and I'd shoot it. Um, here's the biggest thing: is is that we all have to like look in the mirror and know what we're good at. And the stuff we're not good at, we kind of like, you know, we can improve upon it. If we truly care about it, we can improve upon it. But if you're not, you have to be able to tell yourself whether you're a good Indian or not. <clears throat> and in fishing uh, and in hunting, everything is instinct. Like it's all instinct. There's not one part of it where instinct doesn't come to play. It's all about <clears throat> candidly, like how good you are as a fieldsman how good you are at understanding terrain, understanding feed, understanding capacity, understanding the animals. Do you have emotion and feeling? Can you feel something happening? Like I can feel things happening. My friends that hunt with me kind of like low-key get irritated when they hunt with me because I'm like, what is he talking about? And it happens on such a consistent basis. I could probably name off like 10 people that you could have on this podcast that would sit there and talk about me hunting and go like, yeah, he's weird. He's totally freaky. He like doesn't even make sense, but then something happens and I don't understand why. Yeah. That's instinct. And I don't know, I don't know where it comes from. I have no idea how to like, you know, I don't know if it's years on the ocean. I don't know if it's something you're born with. I don't know, but you have to learn how to recognize it. Yeah. And it's not, it's not something that somebody can teach you in a book. It's not something that somebody's going to be able to learn in a podcast. It's not somebody that somebody's going to be able to teach you through videos or text, YouTube. Like, this is something that is innately born in you, and you either have it or you don't. Some people are just straight savage killers, and others are not at all. Do you think that that, that – I'm sorry, but do you think that that um, instinct can be learned through years of hunting? Like experience no. in the field? No, hmm. I don't. You're either goofy or you're not. Yeah, man, I'll, I'll tell you now this. You're going to be born with... Like, my experience is I walked into the field uh, for several years bow hunting and didn't have a clue what I was doing, right? And then I taught myself to slow down and have... Now there, uh, there was one point where it was somewhere around 2015, 2016, I had a aha moment where it was like a light bulb went off and all my thought process changed. And now the decision-making that I do is more instinct driven than it is like the typical hunting strategy. Does that make sense? Like, I feel like I, me personally, my story I was able to pick it up and not necessarily, I may not have been born with it, but I, I was able to recognize it at some point and it just, it, it started to click for me. So I'm going to actually reverse engineer that thought process. And, and in, in my candid opinion, you had it in you all along. It took you a moment to find it. Yeah. Like, so, so the, there's everybody's going to have this process that they go about, but there's some people that you'll send in on a stock and you're trying to flag them in and it doesn't matter what you do. Like there are five, 10% chance of getting a shot. There's other people you send in on a stock every 
single freaking time they're gonna get the shot yeah now how they've honed in on understanding who they are as a hunter and how efficient and effective they are altogether a different thing i i do believe that what you're saying is 100 percent accurate i'm not discrediting at all i, yeah. I actually am agreeing with you i agree with you however i'm just going to sit there and say that it takes time to understand yourself as a fieldsman. Yeah. Like it takes time to like, I have aha moments, my brother, like there's moments where things have connected for me and made me more effective and efficient. So it, it, and the timeline is different for everyone. There's not like a succinct timeline for every person. Nothing happens for each of us in any particular given way. It's like saying all of us are going to be successful at the same time. All of us are going to be entrepreneurs. All of us are going to build multi-million dollar businesses. All of us are going to drive, you know, Ferraris. All of us, all of us are going to live in multi-million dollar homes. Like it's just simply not true. Some will, some won't, and some it might happen when they're twenty. Some it might happen when they're forty. Some it might never happen. Like, but if you desire it and you really, really want it to such a finite degree that nothing is going to get in your way you'll absolutely do the things necessary in order to make that a reality. So like can uh, can a hunter, somebody that loves the outdoors and loves hunting and wants to hunt mule deer, can they get better at it to where, you know, instead of killing one with their bow every, you know, seven to 10 years to where they can kill one every maybe like one to three years. Totally. I do think that you can get better, but I don't think that the innate inborn instinct changes your instinct is your instinct and and the thing is is you get better at listening to it if you focus on it more intently yeah i've been fishing with people that it doesn't matter how much they look at chlorophyll charts it doesn't matter look how much they look at temperature breaks structure uh where the bait and the birds are they're not fishy they can't freaking get the boat on the fish if they tried their life depended on it i mean i spent 20 years doing it it was my livelihood like I knew it inside and out. I watched it happen. I would win over them year after year, in it, every year. I watched it happen. These guys were passionate about it. They stunk of fish. All they did was think about it, but they weren't fishy. Yeah. And that's just the instinct part of it. And the same goes for hunting. It's like some Indians are really good at it, and others just, you know, have to try really, really hard at it just to be kind of like, you know, Okay, and and that's not a slight on anybody. It's simply it's simply kind of like what you're born with and and what your abilities are and how well you are focusing on those abilities. And there's not any one person that can tell somebody whether they're good or not. They just have to be dedicated enough to put the time in to kind of like uh, see themselves develop and and like you said, have those true aha moments that kind of define them and turn them into the hunters that they're going to be. Yeah, yeah, man, I, I I agree with you. I mean, there are definitely guys out there that have it and there's other people out there who are, are kind of good at it, but will never, ever be that guy, if that makes sense. So, um, so as you, you know, you mentioned you started filling all these tags, right? At, At what point, how deep into mule deer hunting were you when you decided to say, Hey man. I want to, I want to shoot the biggest, most badass mature buck that's on the landscape. How did that, you know, what did that transition look like? If that, 
it, was it a steep transition? Was it a, a subtle transition or was it, you know, were you just like, <clears throat> I'm, I'm a big buck killer now. That's all I want to do. Uh, I, I'm going to argue that I still haven't killed any big bucks. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to argue that um, I really want to kill a big buck. Um, I think where I've kind of carved out my niche is the fact that I can get kind of like a lot of the over-the-counter general crap tags and kill the biggest buck in the unit or one of the bigger bucks in the unit based off of like, you know, the, the tag and the genetics in the area that I, that I'm hunting. Yeah. So like I'll put in the time to spend enough time in the country to understand what based off of that given year drought, uh, precipitation, uh, genetic tendencies, um, herd, um, things of that nature I'll, I'll look at. And then, after spending time in the field to understand what is there, I'll make a decision based off of where I'm at in the hunt as to whether or not which one I'm going to harvest. So I'll basically spend the first, you know, week or whatever taking inventory, 10 days taking inventory. Sometimes, you know, if I did some pre-scouting or whatever, I'll, I'll be taking inventory. And then at that point, then I'll say, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to hunt this one and kill it. And the next time I see it, I go in and I kill it. Um, I wouldn't say I've killed anything big. I've never killed anything over 200 inches. Um, you know, and I'm not a big buck killer. I just think that I'm super, super consistent, um, and consistent at killing very mature above average deer, um, you know, on public land with a bow. Yeah. Um, so, so I can't say that, you know, like I do, there's so many people that have like killed so many like way bigger bucks. Um, but if, if we were to compare notes on the units that we're in and the tags that we're drawing, the tags that we're acquiring and the over the counter hunts that I'm in, I'm absolutely smoking people with that. Yeah. Like I'm not getting tie bath. I'm not getting strips. You know, I'm not getting Pontagon. I'm not hunting. I'm not hunting these areas where like, you know, some of these guys, they outfit in or they have businesses in or they, they buy these vouchers for 40, 30, 40 grand and hire guides and stuff. Like I'm a self, I do it everything on my own. Yeah. And I do the research and I get in the country and multiple different States and, you know, put down nice bucks. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't think anything's huge and there's no, you know, chip on my shoulder or anything thinking that I'm like the greatest that way at all. It's just, you know, they're just a bunch of nice deer. Yeah. Um, but is there like a tremendous amount of consistency there? And can I do it kind of with like without hesitation? Yeah, for sure. And that part's been really fun to kind of, um, you know, just to kind of like develop that self-awareness and and just enjoy being in the field and just kind of like now it's more of a spiritual journey, brother. Like I care about what I get from the hunt from the standpoint of that experience and with the people that I'm around and whatnot, much more than I'm like concerned of whether I can kill a buck or whether I'm going to come home with one. I kind of don't even really care about the last part anymore. I mean, I do, but I don't like, if I don't, I'm kind of like, okay, whatever. I didn't see what I wanted, you know? Um, whereas 10 years ago, I was like, Oh my God, I have to kill a buck. You know, now it's kind of like, Oh, that one looks pretty nice. Okay, cool. I'll go after it. You know? But like, I'll let my friends go in on stocks first, or I'll let, I'll try and get my buddies, you know, tagged out before me. Like, I just, it's not as much of an urgency play 
uh, in my heart to be successful as a hunter as I once was. Yeah. So it's, uh, it just kind of comes. It's almost like, I mean, you being from Southern California, maybe, you know, the movie point break where, um, uh, Patrick Swayze's character is like, it's not about the wave. It's about the journey. And, uh, I don't know, for some reasons that kind of, that kind of thought process has always stuck with me, even, even in hunting. And, you know, I, I used to be that guy who was like, Oh man, I didn't see, you know, I didn't see a shooter deer tonight. And then I would get frustrated. And, but then I wouldn't like all of a sudden, as I got older, I just stopped caring about it. And yes, I'm going to go put myself in the best position to kill a deer. But at the same time, if that deer doesn't show up or if a shooter doesn't show up, man, I just, I just absorbed nature for however many hours I was outside. And I just, I don't know, man, I, it's different now. It's, it's totally different, brother. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I, I can, I can say that with a very calm and peaceful heart. Like it is, um, there's no, I don't have this crazy urgency, uh, to, I don't have an urgency to destroy life. Yeah. Like I, I, you'll never see me just killing something to kill it. Yeah. I have no desire to like kill birds, ground squirrels, like, you know, just anything that like, just, just to try and target practice or there's no chip on my, there's no God complex. There's no, to me, it's like, I just want to be a part of this nature, this journey, this, this moment in life. Like I look at myself as no different than the deer. I'm going to die and go back to the earth too for this moment. I'm standing in a position of being, you know, with them holding their antlers, admiring the moment and the journey. But like, Soon enough, man, I'm going to be just like him on the ground. My blood's going to go back into the earth too, whether I like it or not. Yeah. Um, and so I'm very spiritually tied and connected to the fact that, like, I'm no better than them. If anything, I'm exactly like them. And I just want to kind of have, like, a little bit of resounding respect and peace and love in my heart for what they are and what they've given me and be appreciative of that. And at the same time, kind of like, you know, there's this part of me that's like, shit i'm like really good at this so like you know what can i share with the world also like uh i'd love i love to be able to share kind of my perspective on things because there's a lot of other hunters out there that they truly haven't found what it means to them yet all they know is it's like got big antlers and they want to kill it you know what i mean yeah and and i kind of like uh encourage people to kind of look deeper inside themselves and say hey you know what do you think that is 100 what do you think that is inside what do you think that is inside you that's like you know telling you to be that way or think that way like there's 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 a lot more to this yeah than meets the eye and allow yourself to kind of like soak in that journey yeah yeah now let's see you hunt you hunt some big mountains you also hunt some desert like on average how many states are you are you hunting a a year for mule deers um you know honestly as many as i can Uh, i'll get uh, anywhere between five to seven tags a year. Okay. Um, and, uh, I'll just hunt as many of them as I can. <clears throat> like, I, I don't really put a limit on it. I think what happens is just, you know, I'll end up putting a little bit more time on one hunt and then another hunt passes. So I don't get to go on it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I probably, you know, have five to seven tags a year in okay. multiple States. And just, 
if one hunt takes a little longer and I don't get to go on another hunt, then so be it. But, you know, I just make sure I'm fully present and enjoying the journey and um, spending the time to understand the country and learn, you know, what lives there and figure out whether or not I can put something on the ground that's going to make me happy, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So with that said, then you've, you've hunted mule deer in a variety of different environments. I'd like to talk to you about similarities, similarities and and differences. Uh, let's, let's just, I'm I'm just going to use two extremes here. I'm going to use the extreme of the 10,000 foot mule deer or higher or the, you know, the desert mule deer. Do, do those deer have similarities or, or, or big differences that you can talk about? Well, um, I mean, yeah, there, there's tremendous differences in them. Um, yeah, quite a bit, but there are certain things that aren't, you know, very different. Um, now high country mule deer are very migratory species, uh, very migratory species. Um, and they don't necessarily always show up in the same basins year after year. Sometimes they show up in different summering grounds based off of, you know, feed and, and based off of uh, how the herd's doing, herd health and whatnot. But things like drought and fire um, and um, uh, human encroachment on winter range and capacity uh, to that extent definitely delegate uh, traditional summer range mule deer uh, and infringe upon them much more than desert mule deer. So, uh, mountain muleys definitely have a lot more to contend with than the desert deer does. Um, but habits such as, you know, primary beds, day beds, uh, feeding habits, um, things like that, uh, tend to be very similar, uh, amongst all subs, across all subspecies. Um, they, they like to do, you know, very similar things as far as daily activities, time periods, watching diurnal shift, things of that nature, and how they behave, uh, given those criteria, watching back trails, uh, bedding areas, choices of bedding areas, how they go about their life. Uh, there's a lot of similarities. And um, <clears throat> However, you know, they differ dramatically based off of where they live from the standpoint that uh, doesn't mean they're very nomadic. Um, you know, they can, they can be, you know, one spot, today and they could be 15 miles away the next day you know right in a different group of does looking for you know looking for uh looking for a doe and estrus so they don't uh you know hold tight to cover especially during the rut whereas summer summering deer in the mountains the deer only summer in the mountains right they don't they don't winter there so um you're you're dealing with a completely different animal one animal is looking to breed trying to perpetuate this genetic disposition in them to try and you know procreate and breed and, and right and then the other one's just like chilling in bachelor groups munching on cud uh chilling out in the summer range scenario so the, so they're very different categorically and behaviorally speaking however they have uh very common traits and attributes spread throughout um uh, just simply what they are as, as mule deer. Yeah. So, I mean, th- th- that's a yes and no. Yeah. So obviously the, the terrain in those two environments are, are drastic. Okay. I mean, one is gigantic and one's not, not gigantic, but if you were to scale one down and one up in just a, how, t- how deer how these mule deer are actually using the terrain. Is there any similarities there of how they're, how they're using the terrain um, in the same way? Or is it one of those things where that environment, their environments are so drastic that it's a completely different uh, way they use the terrain? 
Yeah, the, their environments are so entirely different that the way that they use the country is, um, is is different to something that like you almost can't describe or explain. Um, both both country types are huge. Like the high mountains, uh, the high basins above thirteen thousand feet, twelve thirteen thousand. I mean, it's a uh, huge alpine basins with willows and and giant freaking peaks that like you couldn't imagine climbing all of them because they're just endless and they're just, they're monstrous, dude. It takes the heart out of any man. Um, and, and, you know, likewise the desert, I mean, it's just endless. It's the same thing for miles for, you know, hundreds of miles, like all around you, it's just desert, just desert. And trying to understand why one piece of the desert looks better than another and why they use it the way they do. Uh, that's truly and ultimately what makes, you know, a really consistent, really good hunter. Um, and I paid attention to all that. As a matter of fact, I'm getting ready to launch, um, I'm getting ready to launch a platform, um, where I will be breaking absolutely everything down for people, um, in videos. My videographer is going to be, uh, filming one minute to five minute sections. We're going to go through every plant, why they eat it, why they use it, what to look for. We're going to go through terrain types. We're going to go through, I mean, you name it. There, over the next few years, there'll probably be thousands of videos on this because of it. But I'm getting ready to launch a platform that's geared towards helping people understand yeah. uh, a little bit why and what goes into why they do what they do. Um, so it's going to be a fun project. It's going to be a lot of work, but um, I'm excited about it. Yeah. So someone, so someone like me who is is new new to the journey. All right. I've been I've went on four different mule deer hunts in the past three years, all in like one, and they they've been in the prairie for the most part. And I'm not looking for necessarily prairie. Uh, like South Dakota and Nebraska prairie sand hills type an answer to this but as a hunter I just want to know more about mule deer so if you were gonna um, start talking to a rookie like me uh, about mule deer what would you tell me from a this is what you need to look for about mule deer there may be behavior or tendencies or how they use terrain or things like that Um, God, that's a general question. Um, is there something about mule deer, um, that just, that sticks out to you that would allow you to say, Hey man, do this or don't do this. Or, you know, cause, cause I, I, I hunt whitetails a lot and then I go to, um, you know, South Dakota, Nebraska, and then I try to hunt mule deer. And the first couple of years I went out, I tried to apply whitetail strategies to hunting. And I'm not saying sitting in a tree stand, but whitetail strategies to hunting mule deer and failed miserably. So um, if, if like, what does a person need to know about mule deer to be successful? Um, you know, <clears throat> you're going to have to spend so much time with them um to like understand them but mule deer are very very nomadic like like a white tail for example um will have generally speaking a, a, a big range for a white tail 
a big home range, like a, a big home range for a whitetail is going to probably be like two square miles of hardwoods. Um, sometimes they could branch that out to five, but gosh, I don't know many whitetails that branch out past five miles. Like usually it's one to two miles of one to two square miles of hardwoods is kind of like their home range and they kind of stay in that. They don't really, they don't really move a crap ton. They can when it starts getting into like open, open stuff without any type of like, if you were to hunt Idaho, Northern Idaho and the panhandle for, for whitetails, that kind of starts to open things up a little bit and they start behaving a little bit more like mule deer. Whereas in the Midwest you have, um, uh, different feed scenarios, whether it's, you know, corn, sugar beets, peas, whatever they're, whatever they're on, whatever, whatever agriculture is around, they'll, they'll kind of stay hard to their bedding areas and their feeding areas. And then when the rut comes, things kind of change and open up. And, but it, it's such a hard thing to try and tell a whitetail hunter how to hunt mule deer because you're really trying to figure out how to use country to your advantage versus worrying about where home range is because a mule deer could be anywhere. Yeah. And the biggest thing with a mule deer is the fact that they are very nomadic and that they are very uh, predictably unpredictable in that they're not going to do the same thing every day um, unless you have a controlled scenario around like a feeder or a field. And me personally, I'm not, I, I do not hunt agriculture. I do not hunt off of fields. I do not hunt off of bait. I do not hunt off of, uh, and I, I just, to me, it goes against my very core philosophy in every single way. Like I, I, I refuse to hunt off of agriculture. Will I hunt like or if they feed on agriculture and if they, if they go up into the mountain, like, yeah, I'll, I'll hunt mountain deer that bed in the mountains. Um, but I'm not going to hunt off agriculture. Um, it, it is there something wrong with it? No, if somebody wants to do that, that's fine. I'm not saying that there's, it's good or bad, but I'm, what I'm saying is I like to hunt. Uh, like if I hunt deer in the desert, I'm not looking for like alfalfa pivots or winter wheat, right? Yeah. I'm looking for places where the rain fell consistently throughout the year. I understand where the monsoons fell in the summer. So that way we're going to have, you know, good post rut recovery great antler development coming into spring and understand where the spring rains fell. So that way the feed was consistent there. So I know that a, per, per, a particular area is going to hold based off of what the, the early season predicated for them based, based on their antler and genetic tendencies and dispositions to come out. So that way they can hunt a certain area based off of what characteristics I want to see in an animal. And then I'll, and then I'll pay attention to where the rains fell in the fall right leading up to the hunt so that, that way I understand where the green up areas, where the does are going to be so that, that way I know where to focus come the rut so that that way I'm in the zones that are producers for deer based off of the conditions, not agriculture fields. Yeah. So a lot of people will just hunt ag field because they're like, oh, there's alfalfa here, there's going to be deer here, and then they'll try and set up ambushes, and then they'll there's a million things under the sun that people do for tactics. I, I'm the opposite of that. I want to hunt free range. I want to hunt as far away from people as possible. I don't want anybody around me. And I want to know why I'm in a piece of country. I want to know exactly why I'm hunting a piece of country. Uh, And it's predicated on the conditions that existed much longer before I was in that country, understanding why they're holding there. And and so I hunt deer and mule deer based off of terrain uh, and the, the bioavailability of 
the essential items that they require in order to, um, you know, create a good set of antlers or good genetics to come out in the in the genetic tendencies that they have based off of feed and the conditions that would allow me to get the best animal that I could off of like an over-the-counter tag, for instance. Yeah. So like I, I pay more diligence to like weather, um, rainfall, precipitation, drought, like where, where was, you know, more impacted by the drought. I, I pay attention to things like that. Yeah. So it sounds um, like just a ton of research goes into your decision-making process on where to hunt and then the instinct kicks in when you're actually on the hunt. Hundred percent, yeah. Okay. Yeah, and and it's kind of interesting. Like, um, you if you were to hunt with me for a week, you'd have all these ahas, and that's kind of like what you know what I want to break down in some of these videos that I'll be doing. Yeah. Um, and, and when we launch this platform is I want to break that down and kind of like help people walk through that and kind of understand what that looks like a little bit better because it can be very challenging and daunting in the beginning to think about truly the amount of effort. Like you live in the Midwest, like coming out here to spend that much time might not seem like it's a, it's a viable thing to do. Um, but like I live, you know, I, I put myself out West because I love mule deer so much. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like you almost have to say, well, I need to move out there. So that way I can be close to it. So that way I can eat it, breathe it, sleep it and live it. And then, uh, and then kind of like go to a bunch of different States and really put in a crap load of time to understand each, um, each kind of environment and why they're using, you know, like I can tell you, I can look at cactuses and different plants and tell you, pretty close to how long ago it rained and how much it rained. Um, I can see, I can tell you based off of looking at the flora and fauna, whether it was impacted by drought long-term or short-term. I can tell you whether it rained there in the last month or not with bluebird skies over us at the present time. Yeah. Um, And based off of what I'm seeing from the desert, be able to let you know like what's happening. And the same goes for, um, you know, high country deer and migratory deer and, 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 and so on. Like th- there's a pattern to it. There's, there's definitely a set of rules. Yeah. And, uh, and it just kind of takes time to extrapolate that information. Just like, just like white hunting. Like yeah. if you threw somebody that's never been hunting, you know, in the hardwoods before and you just throw them into it, it'd be probably fairly lost. Yeah. Cause a lot of it looks very generic until you really start like, you know, identifying funnels, identifying like travel routes, understanding like bedding areas, understanding feeding corridors, understanding rub lines, like understanding how they transition from kind of like, you know, that growing phase period where they're just chilling out to like uh, staging and then, you know, what it looks like when they start getting into the rut, like trying to educate somebody that on whitetails is like uh if i tried to you know encompass that in an hour-long conversation it's impossible impossible yeah yep uh so so kind of you know talking you know we've we've kind of brushed you know we, we could sit here and talk about mule deer for days and days and days and and, and your experiences and and uh how you know their behavior and whatnot but when it comes to all of the places that you've hunt, hunted, do you have a favorite? I mean, do you, do you, would you rather go on a high country hunt over a, a desert hunt or a, a plains hunt? Do you have one that sticks out to you more or you look forward to more? No. Mm-mm. It's just the hunt of the mule. Not at all. Um, yeah. 
it, it's it's interesting. It's a fascinating kind of a thing because um, I've thought about that before. Um, I've, I've truly, truly thought about it before. And when I'm in each environment, when I'm truly in each eco- ecosystem and I'm like traversing mountains, in each moment I sit there and I honestly can genuinely tell myself, this is incredible. This place, this stage, this arena is formidable and deserves my ultimate respect and attention. Yeah. And I absolutely love these places. They're all so different. Yeah. But there's just salt of the earth. It's like, it's like the very fabric of your essence and being. And there's nothing like sitting on a, on the top of a giant ridge at 13,200 feet, listening to pikas chirp and thunderstorms rolling in and watching a bachelor group of mule deer bedded up chewing their cud, like in golf course green scenarios, with wildflowers around them. There's just nothing like it. But like I can sit there and say the same thing of watching a 30 inch buck in the morning light cruise past a freaking big old branched arm saguaro in flats, 1500 feet above him, like four miles out. Yeah. You're just like, there's nothing like old Sonora or, you know, hunting big freaking non-typicals and rutting muleys on the winter range, transitioning from migratory routes. And, you know, in the, in some of these Western States that have these late hunts, like it's just nothing like it. It's like, wow. Like it is just such a overwhelming diversity of understanding and knowledge base that, you truly start to like garner a very much more sophisticated sense of who you are as Absolutely. not only a human being, but as a hunter and you kind of develop a more robust palette for what it is that you want to experience out of that hunt. And yeah. so I go to all these places because I really look forward to being in each one Yeah, and, and being immersed. Like I want to be immersed. Like I just got done spending 28 days in the desert 28 days, yeah. spent 28 days in the desert. And, um, some people might not be that much for me. It's, you know, it was quite a while. Um, but I enjoyed every moment of it. I got to see so many different deer and watch their personalities. I got to see their cycles, like how many days it would take for them to come back around after they were in country. How many days did it come back around and on average for them to come back into the country again? Um, I got to see cycles that, you know, probably most people that show up for a week would never see. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and to, to me, like that's invaluable knowledge, man. Like I pack that away and I use it for, you know, later hunts that make me a better, more sophisticated hunter, uh, and allow me to garner more out of my hunt. So that way, when I go into each hunt, I have a little bit more of a better idea of what to expect. Yeah. Um, and I'm able to like, let myself breathe a little bit. Like, I know it's not realistic for everybody to spend a bunch of time in the field, but uh, when you, you know, when you only give yourself a week, for example, like there's a certain amount of performance anxiety, right? It's like, Oh man, I got to get this done. Like, you know, I got work, I got stuff to do. And you know, you you have this like kind of almost stress that says I got to hammer down in like, you know, a certain amount of time and my buddy's got to get one too. And you know, kind of get stressful. Um, and that's one of the things that like I've loved about spending more time on these hunts is that I kind of breathe and just, oh, oh, didn't see one today. Try again tomorrow, you know? Yeah. Um, and just keep at it. 
yeah. keep your and keep a good attitude about it. Have a really great attitude. Know that you have the proper ability and skill set, and just focus on having a great attitude and just going out there and doing the best you can and, and finding big deer. Uh, you know, I think just naturally happens to me. Any, anything over like you know 170 is a big deer these days, like out west. Like, oh yeah, for sure. You, you know, like 150s, 160s, it's kind of like, yeah, whatever. But, you know, if you can find a, a 170 or better on a, on a over-the-counter or public land type scenario, I mean, for the most part, you're finding that's that's a mature deer. Like the the deer that, you know, they're the 200s, the 210s, 220s, I mean, those are on like the special draw units or the super, super spendy tags, stuff that we won't get for but once every 20 years or, you know. Yeah. Um, unless you just have a crap load of money and you're just dropping lots of money on tags, then you'll start seeing that 190 to 210 range, you know, pretty consistent, but it's unrealistic for any Western hunter to, that, that just likes to go out and hunt every year to, you know, to run into that type of, a, of an animal. Um, and, and I think that uh, it's important that when you go on these hunts to have a, a, a realistic set of expectations going into it that says, you know, if I'm able to wrap my tag around a 170, like you're every year, like you're, you're truly, you are doing something yeah. in, in those units. Like it, cause it just, it's, it's really tough. Let's just say, and I'm not, I'm not asking you to be specific in your locations, but if I, if you were to give advice to someone like myself or a guy who lives on the East coast and has, he, he wants to, he wants to get out and start to hunt mule deer, um, uh, what kind of expectations would you suggest um, to that you should really look at um, for, you know, coming from a where that where you can dedicate only five to maybe seven days of a year to going out and and hunting mule deer is uh, in some of these locations is are the what would what would an accurate expectation be? Hire a guide. <laughs> <laughs> okay um so let's just say that that's the first thing right so what's the second thing like i'm stubborn like i not only do i want to learn but i don't necessarily want to I, I don't know if i necessarily want to hire a guide i want to go and do it myself there's there's something pleasing in that um for me obviously i would be willing to eat a tag for however many years what would the expectation then be for a guy like myself who probably is not going to hire a guide, um, but wants to go like, I'm not, I'm not going to pussyfoot around. I, I will work hard and I will go out and cover ground and, and scout and, and do whatever it takes. But what, what's that expectation like? Um, five to seven days isn't enough. Yeah. It's just, it's just, it's, it's like, you got to start like with these Western hunts, start giving yourself, uh, start telling yourself like, I need 12 to 14 days. And that means like if I do 14 days, that means I have one day of travel on each end. Yeah. 12 days to get it done or at least 12 days with one day of travel on each end and then 10 days to hunt. Yeah. Um, I, what I notice is that unless, unless you're like, I'm perfectly happy with shooting a forky. Or, yeah. you know, 120 inch three by three. If you're happy with shooting 120 inch three by three, then all day long, you know, five to seven days is probably, you, you'll probably be able to do that. But to like come out and try and kill a, you know, 28 inch four by four, you know, 170, 180 buck, like 
it'd probably happen once every 20 years or yeah. once in 20 years, you okay. know, once in 15 years. Like it, it's not as realistic. I mean, is it possible? Totally. Like I'm not going to rule it out and say it's not possible. It's the same thing with me. If I were to go to the whitetail woods and say, Hey, where would you put me to kill 160 inch freaking 10 point? Um, you know, but I have five days to hunt. Yeah. He's probably going to go, Hey, <laughs> good luck, buddy. Not gonna happen. Good <laughs> right. Luck. Like you're freaking smoking something. It's not happening. Right. Could it happen? And could I get stupid blind lucky? Yeah. But 116 is 10 points of damn big deer. Yeah. And, uh, there's, you know, if, if you've been setting trail cameras and you have lots of permission on a lot of private property with the right feed conditions and the right bedding areas, even then you're probably going to have a hard time doing that. Yeah. Um, and you probably won't do that every year. You probably, you know, might kill 145, 148, at 156. You know, you might kill a 160 every couple, every every few years, and then you know you'll stumble into a 180 once in a while, like once every 10 years. Like it, it's it's the kind of thing where you have to be realistic about setting your expectations and understanding what you want out of the hunt. If if the idea is just to come back to one spot and learn it over the next 10 years. Uh, your chances will begin to increase. But the way that deer use country changes so much from year to year and what you're going to see in that particular area based off of rainfall, predation, carrying capacity, a bunch of other factors, that you kind of have to be uh, mobile and understanding uh, how you're going to hunt a given area based off of how they're using the country and know, and, and know how to implement it and when to adapt, understanding when to move. Yeah. A lot of people will like show up somewhere, they'll set up camp and they'll just hunt those, you know, same canyon for five days. Yeah. And, you know, that might not be the way to hunt it. Like you only want to hunt like that if you have the animal found that you've located that you're insistent on harvesting. Yeah. But until then, you know, you might co- cover lots of ground. Yeah. Trying to find, you know, what you're after. And, and the thing is, is the way the deer use country, like a lot of times you have to be in a particular piece of country for several days to start learning how they use the country. And then once you start learning how they use the country, then you have to be at a particular vantage point at a certain time to be able to catch them moving in a position where you can actually see them before they bed to even know that they're in the country. Yeah. A lot of times you can go into country and not be on the right vantage point and sit there and think, well, there's nothing here Yeah. and move on. But there's a lot there. You got it on the wrong day. Yeah. Too windy. Uh, the wind was blowing from the wrong direction. Something was going on that just, you know, other hunters blew deer out, whatever you you have to like, uh, learn what and how to use the country. And, and so that's why sometimes, you know, that, that three to three to that five to seven day period could be, um, very challenging to try and fulfill your objectives and your goals. and, And then thereby it's more important to like get realistic as to what your goal is. And at that point, you can start to pin down, like, what that looks like and how you're going to go about obtaining it. Yeah. I think for you to, like, go into country for five to seven years for a week at a time, I think in five to seven years, you'll start seeing some yield. If um, carrying capacity, drought, and predation don't hinder that particular area given that period of time. Because yeah. out west, the biggest thing is drought. Yeah. It... it it absolutely is one of the things that changes the game and how you're going to hunt and where you're going to hunt from year to, one year to next. I have never killed a single buck in the same place year over year. Yeah. All my deer are from different basins or different areas. Yeah. Because it changes from year to year. So uh, it's just one thing to kind of consider um, and kind of, you know, put like, you know, maybe place a little bit more of an emphasis on it and give up more time on an other hunt 
and put more time into into a different one and then like kind of really focus in on it because it's a goal and an objective that you're looking to fulfill and seek out yeah um and just spend a little bit more time doing it um there's all kinds of things that you know you'll learn along that process yeah which has a lot to do with with how the, the deer are using the country what they're eating where to focus based off of what they're feeding on and, and you know how they're using the country based off of that feed and where they're getting water and all kinds of stuff like that but um yeah just more time yeah time time is really going to be your uh you know your 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 greatest asset yeah for sure i mean it all, it all makes sense it all makes sense definitely um so you know we, we've been talking a long time now and i just i i, I love the position that you come from uh on how you approach hunting and and life really it's it's a it's a it's a real breath of fresh air compared to a lot of the other hunting hunting conversation and content that's out there um let me just ask you just a couple more questions here and then we'll we'll shut her down but this is a more of that that um i'm gonna i'm gonna tell you a very quick story and then i want i'm gonna ask a question so one thing that I absolutely love, um, and a lot of it is in the same environment that mule deer are in, all right, whether it is, and for me, most of my mule deer hunting experience or, or Western hunting experience is in, in the, the Western prairie, or um, uh, I've been elk hunting a couple times and I've been up, you know, to that, that 12,000 feet and, and things like that. But one thing I really like about those environments that I don't get here in Iowa is it makes me feel small. And for some reason, I love that feeling. I love like, almost like I'm insignificant in the grand scheme of things, uh, the, the small feeling. So my question to you really is like, why do you love whether it is the hunt itself, the environment that you're in, or just mule deer hunting in general, why do you love those things? Uh, I think you kind of like hit the nail on the head, to be honest. Like, uh, it's about being a part of something much bigger than yourself. Um, when I got into hunting, I didn't really, you know, have any aspiration or ambitions to like, for example, be sponsored or, you know, uh, to, to care about like, uh, kind of like the industry or the people that are a part of it as much. I just wanted it as a new experience. And the deeper that I got into it, the more it was about immersing myself into this country that was just so overwhelmingly huge and could swallow me up. Not only that, but like, just bring my, bring me to my knees. Yeah. Um, like no matter how much I trained, no matter how tough I thought I was, no matter how strong my mind was, like the country just doesn't care. It's like, it's so big and so, it's so enormous on such a different level that it, it doesn't matter how well prepared you are. Like it, you're still not good enough. Yeah. Like it, it just chews you up and spits you out. And I really love that about that, about it. But I find that in general, in nature, um, it has a way of humbling us. It truly has a way of humbling us. Like we can want things as bad as we can possibly want something. We can want it just to our core. 
And it doesn't mean Mother Earth is going to give it up. And I've noticed that the harder you work against nature, the more she's like literally going to like make you learn lessons. And the only thing you're going to do is pay attention. Yeah. And be humbled by it and listen and understand that really you control nothing. But then when you start working with her and you start understanding her and learning her and you treat her as the living, breathing entity that she is and her rules are very simple. And once you start working to reach a form of like tune with her stride, do uh, you begin to start seeing like the type of success that you want consistently. I truly believe that everyone who is very successful in Western hunting is also very connected and tied to the land. Yeah. Like there's this very deep, um, very loving uh, connection to the land that they have. It's very profound. And, uh, and, and so as a result of that, it's the country and how big it is and how beautiful it is and how much it swallows you up and consumes you and allows you to dream of what's potentially over the next ridge and that next basin. And, you know, you could just potentially go forever. Then there's this other part that, you know, grows within me. And, and the reason why I'm like, you know, with you here now today is to like potentially spread like a little bit of a different point of view. That Absolutely. This is definitely not about just a kill. It's not, you know, think about it as being a part of your life force and that like really you can live without it. Um, because it ties us to the land, it connects us to what we're a part of that's greater than us. And there's a spirituality behind it that's so much more resounding than, you know, harvesting a big buck. And that that's just part of the process as human beings as we evolve into the people that we are. And that, you know, maybe we can pass along a little bit of diligence and love and uh, characteristics of showing compassion to our quarry and love for the quest and that in that journey that, you know, those harvests will come yeah, and uh, spread, spread a little bit of a, a bigger picture on what, what that is for people. Yeah. Uh, and that's why I end up caring about things like my sponsors and caring about things like the equipment that I use and spreading knowledge and helping share those, uh, you know, these pursuits with others. So that way it can help them in their journey. And, you know, I so, so very much so wish that I had, uh, like who I am now to talk to myself when I was, you know, 27, 28 when I first started. Right. Yeah. Um, so I don't know if that answered it. Oh yeah, man. I tell you around about way, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely agree with what you said, man. Um, love it. I love the message and, and all that stuff. So, First off, I want to say, man, I really appreciate you taking time out of your day. I know you're a busy man um, to come on here and, and chat with us today. Much appreciated. Uh, as far as your Instagram feed that people can go check you out on, what's your Instagram feed? Um, IG for hunting is uh, G-R-A-Y-L-I-G-H-T, Hunter, Graylight Hunter. Um, so just at Graylight Hunters, uh, IG. Artwork is at Marlon Holden. Um, and uh, I got a website at graylighthunter2.com um, but uh, yeah sounds good man well again really appreciate your time uh, and good luck out in the field thank you my bro appreciate you having me on and uh, and hopefully we get to do it again soon 
And there you have it, ladies and gentlemen, another episode in the books. Huge shout out to Marlon. I know this dude is crazy busy. So uh, thank you very much for taking time out of your day to hop on and chat. Looking forward to uh, a couple other conversations uh, whenever we get around to it. Huge shout out to all the brands that support the Nine Finger Chronicles. Hunt Stand, Wasp, Ozonix, Novex, Vortex, Exodus, and Excalibur. Please go out and support the companies that support this podcast. Uh, And lastly, um, man, as you kind of heard with this conversation in this podcast, man, it's all about positive energy. It's all about good vibes. And I was talking to my wife today about how I just feel the, the nation has changed. Everybody's more tense. Everybody has a shorter fuse. The patience levels have dropped tremendously. Nobody is thinking about others anymore. They're just in their own world thinking about themselves. And I don't blame them. I mean, it's, it, it's, it's crazy out there right now. But if we can take a step back, if we can focus on others, if we can send good positive energy out to the universe, man, I'll tell you right now, that's a game changer. So uh, I'm sending good vibes out to all of you. Have a great week. I'll talk to you when I talk to you. Crack a cold one, drink a bourbon when you get home tonight. If you're listening to this in the morning and you're going to like a a forklift job, I wouldn't recommend it. But when you get home, sit after the kids are in bed and just ah, relax, send the positive vibes out and they'll come back. We'll talk to you next time.